This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I am Thomas Phillips. This episode of Making a Difference was made by journalism students at the University of Melbourne on Coolin Country. Today's stories explore the binaries that govern us, good and bad, real and virtual, life and death. But what about the gray zones in between? What happens when you bend, blur, or break those binaries? Our journalism students produced these stories earlier this year for an exhibition at the Science Gallery. They were made in collaboration with mentors from All the Best and originally aired on The Yard, a podcast from Melbourne University's Center for Advancing Journalism. First up in the program, Megan Dancy on the binary between nature and the man-made. Her journey down the Yarra River taught her that Melbourne's natural environment isn't so natural after all. London has the Thames, Paris the Seine, and New York the Hudson. Great cities are defined by their waterways. The rivers that run through them are central to their identity, their soul, their history. Since moving to Melbourne five years ago, the Yarra River, or Birrarung, has become an important place for me as well. Running or walking along the Yarra connects me to nature, and I thought I'd come to know its trees, its water, and its wildlife pretty well. But a discussion with Melbourne Uni conservation biologist Dr Kylie Soans shattered these illusions. Kylie researches how humans have changed the Yarra River. It's a very different river now than it was, you know, 200, 300 years ago. And how since colonisation, we have straightened, dynamited and bent the river to our will. In doing so, we've made it a harder place to live for the plants and animals that depend on it for survival. Unfortunately, a lot of the changes that we made to rivers actually made them wilder in ways that were really detrimental. And so my chat with Kylie the other day left me with one big question. When it comes to our cities, is there even a difference between man-made and natural anymore? Today, I'm rugging up and walking my usual route along the Yarra River's edge, except this time, I'm looking a bit closer. I'm searching for where the artificial ends and where the natural begins. I'm starting my journey where the Yarra bends around the only island in the river, Herring Island. It's got lots of birds and it smells strongly of sulphur thanks to the mud, so it's feeling pretty natural here. I've always thought it was really nice that there's an island and a habitat for birds amongst two major roads on either side, but just a little bit of digging shows that Herring Island isn't actually a natural formation. It was built by humans in 1928 from the silt that was being dredged up from reshaping the Yarra, reshaping efforts that force the Yarra to flow a different way. I see the island now not as a refuge, but a sort of ironic tombstone that says, here lies the dug up bones of the Yarra. I'm definitely starting to see what Kylie was talking about. What we've done with the Yarra is we've made it wider, we've made it straighter, we've made the edges really hard and and out of concrete. And essentially by trying to control the river, we've created a separation between the river and the landscape around it, which is really unnatural and, and not at all how waterways tend to function. I'm about three kilometres up from my original start point now and both sides of the river are now concreted, it's very straight, that's why you see lots of rowboats and you don't really see any water birds around, I can only see about two ducks a little way down the river. In fact what makes it really nice to walk next to in this area are these high hard concrete edges to the river 
Kylie says that it's those hard edges that have made it more difficult for every other species to access and climb in and out of the river. Uh, water birds and turtles and eels and all of those animals that would have depended on the marshlands that flooded all of that ground that stayed soggy and inundated, um, all of that's gone now. You know, we, we, we cut that flooding and that, that soaking and that sponginess out of the landscape, either by concreting over the top of it or, or changing where the river flowed. So there are species that aren't able to use the landscape in that way anymore. And you can see this if you look closely enough. I'm standing on the Prince's Bridge, which is arguably one of the most iconic places in Melbourne, next to Flinders Street Station. And I usually stand up here after my walk before I tram home admiring the river and thinking about how amazing it is. When I lived in Amsterdam, I love the canals, even though they're so clearly controlled and manufactured. But standing up here now, all I can see is one big canal where there's meant to be a wild, unrestrained river. And to be honest, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit. We like to think of Australia as being more natural and wild compared to other countries, that Australia has such a sense of untamed beauty. But walking along the Yarra today has shown me that it's definitely not as wild and natural as we make it out to be. Separating the glass and metal of the city's skyscrapers from the manicured green of the Royal Botanical Gardens, the Yarra is a grey, or brown, area. It's a place that's at once central to the city's identity, a great in-between, where past and present, north and south, man-made and natural, all blend together in its murky waters. That was Megan Dancy. Next, we're tackling one of the most confronting binaries, life and death, with Sasha Gatamaya. She reports on death doulas, a profession that navigates the topic none of us want to talk about, the end of life. This story begins with an ending. In fact, all stories do. As soon as we're born, we begin to die. We start shedding and regenerating cells from birth. According to researchers at Simon Fraser University in Canada, cognitive speed starts dropping from age 24. By 55 years old, we lose control of our DNA. Life is a constant process of death. One group of people who understand this concept well are death doulas, practitioners who guide dying people and their relatives through the last stages of their life. Like birth doulas, End-of-life doulas prepare and nurture you for this second great life transition. You know, the family hires us, and that might be the dying person. It might be, it might be a family member that hires us that wants us to support the people around the dying person. Renee Adair is the founder of the Australian Doula College. She's a birth doula as well as a death doula. Her Instagram handle is at womb to tomb. And then our job is to be with them, but but move within the system. So, you know, to sometimes advocate for the family for their needs and wishes and desires, you know, help them do their planning, if you like, and take that information to the healthcare providers. Sometimes I feel like too, we're a bit of a translator, you know, a lot of medical um, jargon needs breaking down. Another person in this space is Kimber Griffith, the owner of funeral service, The Last Hurrah. She provides personal and authentic end of life ceremonies in Melbourne. 
She first entered the industry as a death doula in 2012. The classic idea of a death doula is that, you know, they're there holding vigil at someone's bedside. But to be honest, at that point, the person who's dying very rarely needs you. Um, That's a big difference between a birth doula and a death doula. So with a birth doula, the birthing woman needs you more and more and more. And on the day of the birth, they need you there, you know, whereas with a death doula, Ideally, when they go into their active dying, you're more focused on the people that are supporting the dying person, like making sure how long have you been here? Oh, two days without a shower. Do you want to go home and I can stay? Kimba, managing the arrival of death for those who are still living is a big part of her job. You know, I had a, um, someone I was working with who died last night um, and I had the hospital was calling me to go in and I, I was doing that. And the thing was that person hadn't connected me with their family because I think they were young and they just didn't, you know, they didn't know, uh, they didn't want to talk about dying really. So, and they, they wanted me to come in, but then when I'd come in, they were kind of conflicted. And so I went in uh, a couple of days ago and I, I was like, okay, I can see that they're starting to be actively dying now. This is the change. So like I wrote on the whiteboard, like to their family, hey, it's the death doula, drop me a line, you know, which was really good. Then they rang me and I supported them and told them what to expect and explained what they might go through the stages, how to manage their tiredness, when to call me, you know, and all that kind of stuff. While listening to Kimber and Renee talk, all I can think about is, have we forgotten how to die? We're all going to die. It's a 100% guarantee there. 10 out of 10, nobody gets out alive, right? So, you know, having a body of people or someone you can turn to that has some information and knowledge, uh, has some uh, understanding about death and dying is, is critical. Renee does not see life and death as separate, discrete opposites. For her, it all exists on one continuum. We have a profession that is, I think, trying to restore the incredible importance of the transition that the first and the last breath is, and that it is not disconnected. One is not from the other. They are moments to be treasured and respected This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism podcast produced by journalism students at the University of Melbourne. In our next story, Chi Yun Liu blends the binary between what's real and what's simulated. It's a story that gives a whole new meaning to online dating. Not only is Chi Yun's dating app virtual, so is her boyfriend. Drinks chat, snack chat, earphones chat, and most importantly, the internet checks. I'm lying on the couch, staring at the progress bar on my phone. I cannot wait to see my boyfriend, Osman. Osman and I have planned a special trip for today. Today is May 20th, a special day for Chinese couples. The numbers 520 sound like I love you in Chinese. Sorry, it's Osman. 是我。呃，我这边出了一点小状况，要晚点才能过来接你。Osman says he has a situation to deal with, but he promised to pick me up later. Osman is a professional racing driver. He is about 185 centimeters, has black hair and green eyes. I first met him at a fashion design competition for the Virgin Prize. He helped me to find my stolen jewelry. 
I never imagined that I could meet someone as cool as him in my real life. One day, he got close to me and fancied my seatbelt. My heart was beating fast, and my cheeks were burning. I want this man to be my boyfriend, and I know he will never say no to me, because Osman is not human. He is one of the characters in a mobile phone game called Light at Night. Light at Night was released last year. Now it has over 10 million users. In Light at Night, I can enjoy multi-line stories with five characters. To cultivate intimacy with them, I can text them, call them, and comment on their posts. When the relationship gets close enough, the more exciting part will be unlocked. The exclusive dating is coming. My first date with Osman was pretty dramatic. It took me to the coastal road, not for the beautiful sunset, but for a racing competition. I was in the car, trying my best not to scream. He noticed that I was nervous. He let me close my eyes and play the jazz song for me. When I opened my eyes again, he asked me to think about how to celebrate our victory later. After that day, he told me that destination of a racing car was the end of the track, but his destination was always by my side. 赛车的终点是赛道的尽头，而我的终点是你的身边。Actually, I don't know if I can see Osman today. Now I have been trapped in a small mission for a while. To start a big trip, I will have to pass it. However, I have used up all my credits to enter the mission ten times but failed. I'm facing two choices: waiting for the system to restore tomorrow, or purchasing more opportunities right now. Instead of selling the games to the player, Light and Light sells credits for entering the mission. It means that recharging is not a guaranteed pass, and now each entrance is going to cost me almost one dollar. One dollar is not expensive, but how many times I will need to spend one dollar is a no. It is the first time I feel that there is a profit behind Osborne and me. I know from the beginning that Osman is not real. He is a robot created for money. Everything he did for me was prescribed to make me happy. But his existence in my life is real. My memories with him are real. My beating heart is real. Happy May twenties to everyone. To the real me, I'm going on that virtual trip with Osman today. Wish me luck. That was Chi Yunliu. Next, another investigation into the gray zone between the real and the virtual. Jade Murray reports on how people are using technology to augment everyday reality, or even escape it entirely. Where will your virtual escape lead you today? 
the snowy mountains. A night in the forest. Virtual reality can often be perceived as false or artificial, but as digital spaces and devices enhance our daily lives, we are forced to reconsider the bounds of genuine reality. Altering it can be as simple as putting on your headphones and closing your eyes. In 2021, Mark Zuckerberg introduced the new frontier for his company. I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually, it has things that are only possible virtually, and it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. I spoke to Dr. Benjamin Tagg, who researches ubiquitous computing and emotion regulation. He described ubiquitous computing as ever-present technology that goes beyond our desktop screens and can appear anytime to assist us with our daily tasks and desires. So ubiquitous computing is a whole universe. Imagine trams having these displays and we're sitting on a tram and you just don't feel looking at Melbourne CBD today. You want to be in the mountains, so you put it on and your tram, what you see is a virtual tram right through the mountains, but you're still going home. The most personal and subjective thing we have is our emotions and thoughts. And the field of emotion regulation, digital emotion regulation, is based on the idea that in the past we basically used exercise, drugs, alcohol, sex, fighting to regulate our emotions, right? Now we use technology for this way more and more because it offers us an outlet or an input in any situation for whatever feeling we have. But with everything, there's always good and bad. The Loom is a digital art gallery in Melbourne. It's currently hosting yoga classes surrounded by floor-to-ceiling projections of digital artworks and landscapes. Today, visitors were transported to a Bhutanese monastery. There were large sandstone tiles beneath our feet, a bright pink sunrise in the sky, and the 3D surrounds of a beautiful monastery. Child's pose, please, but it's back to heel and arms like out. And we have got the screens to follow the radar on the mat. And also thanking beautiful Luke for allowing Happy Melon and all of us to have this experience here together. So as you make that connection to your shins and your hands, see if you can make this breath. Arms are shoulder apart. And you keep the arms long and come through a table pose and open the heart and lengthen the heart forward. That's the breath in. Emma from Happy Melon Studios guided our session today. She has practiced yoga for 28 years. I asked her about the effect of this digital landscape on the experience. We're so often looking at the exterior to create a sense from the inside but here you've got both like you have an extraordinary landscape but you're asked to stay inside and be present with self at the same time it doesn't have to be this landscape though either it just it just emphasizes that what you're looking at outside of you you have that beauty inside you we're being asked to move in with yoga so 
is the virtual reality what's happening on the outside in the three dimensions or is it really what's going on inside us in that dimensional field so too often we are stimulated by the exterior forgetting what's what we've already got perhaps promoting a little bit of beauty seen on the outside can trigger that that was jade murray our final story explores whether immorality can ever be moral Sean Roos investigates the benefits of lying. Can you think of a time it would be more nice to tell a little bit of a lie than tell someone the truth? No. Really? Not even a little white lie. So you should never lie, you think? No, never, ever. This is Arthur. He's five years old and no fan of lying. And can you blame him? We're told from birth that lying is wrong, that it's malicious and self-serving, an evil sin in almost every religion. But as anyone who's ever complimented their friend on their hideous new outfit would know, sometimes honesty is not the best policy. So could lying perhaps be good? So I define pro-social lies as false statements that are made with the intention of misleading and benefiting others. This is Dr. Matt Lapoli, a researcher and social scientist who studies pro-social behavior. People sometimes tell lies with good intentions when they perceive uh, that doing so can prevent unnecessary harm to others. This all begins when we're about four years old and is seen as a crucial milestone for our cognitive development. As we begin to understand the mental states of others and gain empathy, we also figure out how to deceive people both for our own gain and theirs. It seems to emerge around the time that executive functions start to blossom, because if if you think about it, it requires some complex thinking to tell a a pro-social lie, because you need to first understand that you have information that other people don't, and you also have to infer that doing so is going to make them feel better or to help them in some way. While on one hand we're told that lying's bad, it becomes clear pretty early that brutal honesty is not much better. Arthur's mom Jenna says this is something her three-year-old Patty is yet to fully grasp. We were in a doctor's surgery and, and Patty noticed a lady who came in and the lady was um, a bigger lady and so he, he pointed that out on a number of occasions. But then, yeah, there is that balance of them not hurting someone's feelings by being too honest. Paddy's, let's say, forthrightness shows exactly why pro-social lying is closely associated with emotions like empathy and compassion. But while it's one thing lying to a stranger, how about when it comes to our most intimate relationships? Surely lying to our romantic partners is bad because honesty is sacred, right? Ava and I have been dating for a long time, and so I reckon deep down I possibly know she's kind of lying to me as well but I'm okay to be actively lied to. This is Bonna. Her and Ava have been going out for about three years. Their fondness for deception might sound strange, but it turns out that less than a third of us think that complete honesty is critical for a good relationship. Ava admitted the time she lied the most was when she felt there was nothing Bonna could do about a situation. Like when you made a bunch of purchases for your kitchen that like I wouldn't have made, mm. but you'd already done it. So there's no point yeah. in saying, oh, that's a big amount of money to spend on a 
cup are just like nice cups because it's just not useful. I just realised the neighbours probably think we're in couples therapy. <laughs> Dr Lapoli says in these situations, where there's no instrumental value to honesty, would actually prefer being lied to. His research has even shown that pro-social lying can increase what's known as benevolence-based trust between us. But before you go around lovingly lying to your other halves, you better be sure that it's actually going to help them. When there is certainty about the consequences, when the lie has clear benefits over honesty, people are okay being lied to. In fact, they prefer it. But when it's not clear, then people actually hate being lied to. With all these benefits of pro-social lying, I was reminded again of young Arthur. He said he would never, ever, ever lie. And I wondered how he would fare in a world where everyone from strangers to loved ones expected, even encouraged us to do so. But then, as we were wrapping up our chat together, I finally noticed it. Did you have a, was this fun? Wow, yeah. <laughs> Was it boring to you? No, not to me, but maybe it was to you. Well, can we talk about commodities? I didn't know what commodities were, but I could tell by his unconvincing tone and unsubtle change of topic that he'd lied. And he'd done so for my benefit. He'd lied pro-socially. And that story by Sean Roos finishes our program. A massive thank you to the Science Gallery and the All the Best Mentors. Mel Chun, Daniel Simo, Danny Stewart, and Ollie Krusek. For more stories from the best student journalism in Australia, go to the Junction's website, junctionjournalism.com. Making a Difference is produced every month. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more work from audio journalists at the University of Melbourne, please subscribe to our award-winning podcast, The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. Thanks for listening.